radio by students for students. You are why. How to Break a Radio Station, the podcast, is taken from a show broadcast live on URY. Therefore, whenever we ask you to message in via the website, you will not be able to do so. Please bear this in mind as you enjoy the show. Hello, good afternoon, welcome to this week's edition of How to Break a Radio Station. This is your show here on URY, which over the course of this term will teach you how to break your very own radio station. I'm Harry, and once again I'm joined by Jess and Alice, as well as special guest Isaac. Hello. 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 Last week we were joined by Ben and we were having some fun looking at audio effects. Today we're going to be learning about how AM radio and transmission works along with a bit of history. This is the last big thing to discuss in the audio chain that we discussed a good few weeks ago now. Mics, preamps, compression, EQ and broadcast. Uh, Yeah, so talking about a bit of history, that's me. And I'm going to start us off with a guy called Heinrich Hertz, who you may recognise from Hertz Unit of Frequency. I'm guessing it's a guy that that, that, that did that. I don't actually know for sure. Um, But how many people are called Hertz? Not that many. Yeah, that's my thinking. That's my thinking. Anyway, he this guy was the first scientist to successfully generate and receive electromagnetic waves by creating high voltage sparks in a gap between two nodes. And when these sparks reached another gap, a spark would be created there too. Um, and if you if you tune an AM radio, if you so happen to have one, um, to a really quiet station, for instance, you are by we're quiet, um, then switch a light switch on and off. You, you may hear a small popping noise as the radio detects the, the spark generated by the switch, which is a cool thing that I didn't know you could do, but I do now. Um, the person, however, generally credited as the primary early developer of AM technology is a Canadian-born inventor called Reginald Fen- Fes- Fessenden. That's it. There's a lot of names in the history section. <laughs> this is going to go well. Um, the original... Uh, spark gap radio transmitters were pretty impractical for transmitting audio they produced discontinuous pulses that didn't really go that far Um, and at the time there was also a need for communication that didn't rely on wires like telephone telegraph uh, did for instance if you wanted to communicate with a ship in the middle of the ocean it's not got wires trailing after it you're going to need something that doesn't rely on that Um, So he realised that what was needed was a new type of radio transmitter that produced a steady, continuous wave signal, um, which could then be modulated to reflect the sounds being transmitted. And his basic approach called for the use of a high-speed alternator, referred to as an alternating current dynamo, that generated pulse sine waves and produced a continuous uh, wave transmitter. Now... Um, his ultimate plan for creating uh, an audio capsule transmitter was to redesign an electrical alternator, which normally produced uh, an alternating current of at most a few hundred hertz, uh, but to receive to increase its rotational speed so that the generated current so it generated currents of tens of thousands of hertz. Um, with that that being the idea, he was going to need um, much bigger powered alternator than had been conceived, invented, um, however you want to put it. After a few years of uh, working with some people, he was he was able to get something that, that 
might be powerful enough. And uh, the next step was uh, adopted from standard wire telephone practice, and it was to insert a microphone into the transmission line to modulate the carrier wave um, signal to produce AM audio transmissions. This meant that the full transmitter power was flowing through the microphone, and even using things like water cooling, um, the power handling ability of the microphones was severely severely limited the power of transmissions and there was also a massive uh, issue of overheating because it had loads of power going through it and ultimately only a small number of these um, large and powerful alternators would be developed and uh, ever used Um, next thing that came along was arc transmitters and almost all of the continuous AM transmissions made prior to 1915 were made by versions of the arc converter transmitter um, initially developed by someone called Voldemar Poulsen which I've probably just butchered uh, in 1903 they work by producing a pulsating electrical arc in an enclosed hydrogen atmosphere and are much more compact than the alternator transmitter and they also operate on higher transmitting frequencies they suffer from some of the same deficiencies uh, the lack of any means to amplify electrical currents um, this this meant that the microphone still had to be inserted directly into the antenna wire which again resulted in overheating issues um, even with the use of water-cooled microphones and uh, thus the transmitter power was uh, had to be limited um, they, they are also somewhat un- unstable which did, did have a detrimental effect on the audio quality but next up uh, came a thing called vacuum valves. Advances in vacuum valves revolutionised radio technology because these devices could be used to amplify electrical currents, overcoming the heating issues of needing to insert the microphone directly into the transmission antenna circuit. So you could, you didn't have to rely on it being part of the circuit. You could have something going into the microphone and then amplify it um, and put that signal in, and that greatly resolved issues of overheating and um, space being taken up and all that kind of thing. And AM technology was enabled to advance uh, using using valves, but it was also greatly advanced during wartime research. And after the war, the availability of tubes uh, sparked a great interest in the number of amateur radio stations experimenting with transmitting news and music. and so they remained central to the technology of radio for about 40 years until transistors began to dominate in the late 1950s. You are wise. So you might have been you might have been confused by a couple of the terms that I used in that uh, history, but I kind of wanted to give a sort of background of um, how radio broadcast came to be uh, before really getting into it. And so now I'm going to talk about. Uh, things that I mentioned such as modulation and carrier frequency and what those mean uh, so a, a transmission words a transmitter works um, by taking in a high voltage oscillator with an adjustable frequency and that creates something called a carrier wave um, and what the carrier wave does is it has a set frequency and it allows um, a receiver at the other end to tune into that specific frequency so then you can have multiple different stations um, broadcasting but each one has a different carrier wave frequency and therefore you can pick which one you want to listen to Um, 
or or as my dad uh, would have it my dad drew me a lovely little diagram to help explain help explain not that that really works on the radio but he did he did refer to the carrier frequency as the high frequency wibble so if you ever do forget the term then high frequency wibble will also suffice people are sure to know what you mean it's all wibbly wobbly timey wimey that's, that's, <laughs> that's really how it works um, so what you do with this carrier wave is you modulate it with your speech or music signal with a voltage controlled amplifier. Uh, what it does is it creates a signal that has an amplitude that is varied by the signal of your voice or your music. And all a receiver will then have to do is is find the carrier frequency and um, as Alice is going to go on to talk about, it will interpret that. Um, the transmission is is then amplified and transmitted from an antenna. Now we broadcast on 1350 kilohertz, but there is actually some space either side of that where we're allowed to transmit, and this is due to bandwidth, um, as the frequency content of the transmission isn't perfectly um, 1350. There's these things called sidebands, which is quieter signals at frequencies either side of the carrier carrier frequency that kind of exist and are a thing and we're, we're, we compensate for that by having a bandwidth that we're allowed to um, broadcast in but as I mentioned uh, earlier we also need to receive that broadcast so over to Alice for receivers. Yeah a radio receiver is an electronic device which receives radio waves and converts the information carried by them to a usable form so it'll receive the radio waves from the transmitters. Um, the most familiar form of radio receiver is a broadcast receiver, and often just called a radio, which receives audio from local radio stations like URI, for example. Broadcast receivers either have speakers or an earphone jack socket, a volume control and a tuning control, which means you can select what radio station you want to listen to. You find broadcast receivers in many forms, such as car radios, alarm clocks and boom boxes, which is a fun one that I found on the Wikipedia as an example. Um, you can also find radio receivers in many other forms, such as satellite TVs, mobile phones, walkie-talkies, and remote controls for things like model cars and boats, or as simple as a garage door opener. So how exactly do they work? A radio receiver is connected to an antenna, which converts some of the energy from the incoming radio wave into a tiny radio frequency, AC voltage, which is applied to the receiver's input. An antenna typically, typically consists of an arrangement of metal conductors, the oscillating electric and magnetic fields of the radio waves push the electrons in the antenna back and forth, creating an oscillating voltage. The antenna may be enclosed inside the receiver's case, attached to the outside of the receiver or mounted uh, separately and connected to the receiver by a cable. Practical radio receivers perform three basic functions on the signal from the antenna, filtering, amplification and demodulation. So bandpass filtering is radio waves from many transmitters pass through the air simultaneously without interfering with each other. These can be separated into the receiver because they have different frequencies. That is, the radio wave from each transmitter oscillates at a different rate. To separate out the desired audio signal, the bandpass filter allows the frequency of the desired... I can't speak. ...of the desired radio transmission to pass through and blocks signal at all other frequencies. To select a particular station, the radio is tuned to the frequency of the desired transmitter. Tuning is adjusting the frequency of the receiver's passband to the frequency of the desired radio transmitter, 1350 kHz in URY's case. 
Turning the tuning knob changes the resonant frequency of the tuned circuit inside the transmitter. Inside the transmitter? No, inside the receiver. When the resonant frequency is equal to the radio's transmitter's frequency, the tuned circuit oscillates in sympathy, passing the signal onto the rest of the receiver. Amplification. Uh, okay, the power of the radio waves picked up by a receiving antenna decreases with the square of its distance from the transmitting antenna. An antenna. I really can't speak today. <laughs> inverse square law. Is that is yeah. that inverse square law? Yeah. Boom. Yeah. Um, even with the powerful transmitters used in radio broadcasting stations, if the receiver is more than a few miles from the transmitter, the power intercepts by the receiver's antenna is very small, perhaps as low as picowatts. To increase the power of the recovered signal, an amplifier circuit uses electric power from batteries or the wall plug to increase the amplitude um, of the signal. In most modern receivers, the electronic components which do the actual amplifying are transistors. Um, okay, finally, demodulation. After the radio signal is filtered and amplified, the receiver must extract the information bearing modulation signal from the modulated radio frequency carrier wave. This is done by a circuit called a demodulator, and each, each type of modulation requires a different type of demodulator. So an AM receiver which receives amplitude modulated radio signals uses an AM demodulator and an FM receiver uses an FM demodulator. The modulation signal output by the demodulator is usually amplified to increase its strength, then the information is converted back to a human usable form by some type of transducer. An audio signal representing sound, as in a broadcast radio, is converted to sound waves by an earphone or loudspeaker, and that is how we can listen to the radio. UI. So with all this talk about technical terms and uh, what ha should happen with various pieces, probably worth bringing up what actually tends to happen in our setup with reference to uh, the rest of the world, and it's often as quite as janky as you imagine. For UI specifically, we only broadcast on a very low power, specifically one watt radiated in the monopole pattern. So we can make certain compromises to the workings of our transmission chain that a higher powered transmitting station couldn't. Specifically to the size of the equipment, which for powerful AM stations can get rather big very quickly, with power amplifiers and filters that can very easily fill a room. Our equipment doesn't fill a room, or even a cupboard. Only four rack units in total. Uh, our transmission chain starts with our AM processor, which is made by Innovonics. The point of this unit is to perform adjustments to the analog audio signal fed into the modulator in order to keep us legal by cutting any input frequencies that could be modulated into an undesirable or even illegal output, and to enhance the input signal so that it sounds best on the average AM receiver. Due to limitations with our equipment, we send only the left channel of our stereo output into the processor. Much of the distress of 70s Queen songs produced by Brian May shortly after his momentous discovery of the pan knob. At this point, the input signal receives processing that performs the following signal processing in order. First, remove any frequencies higher than 9 kHz in order to reduce spurious out-of-band license transmissions on our output, and increase the headroom for the rest of the processing by removing frequencies that AM cannot reliably represent on standard UK broadcast bandwidth. The processor then uses a tuned and limited VCA in order to pre-emphasize the output signal to NTSC response curve standards. 
Re-emphasis is the boosting of high-frequency signals, which, as they have less power than lower-frequency signals, can be very easily drowned out by background noise and IM, in order to make them more comprehensible at the receiver, where the NTSC input function will be undone in order to re reproduce the original signal, to some degree of accuracy at least. In the processor, the pre-emphasized audio then goes on to be symmetry corrected, where inputs that are negative biased, that is to say, more weighted towards uh, negative input voltage down the wire, will be adjusted to make the best use of limited headroom that you have available on AM, and improve their reception on DC rectified receivers by overcorrecting the positive element of the wave up to 130% of the original. As a lot of signals are naturally phase biased, particularly the human voice, this processing is applied depending on the width of frequencies polled over a gating function on the processor input. A solo speaker on a relatively narrow range of frequencies like myself shouldn't trigger it, but a fully mastered modern record should, hopefully sounding better on output than a rather muddy response that you would otherwise get on older, simple heterodyne receivers, as listeners to Radio Hell Luxembourg would frequently complain about during the beginning of the loudness wars. Finally, we limit the output. To prevent clipping from overdriving of the amplifier and nasty spurious permissions outside of our license that could come as a result. After coming out of the processor, the signal is finally sent to our actual transmitter unit. Unlike the majority of larger commercial offerings, our transmitter does modulation, where the input signal is turned into a 1350kHz amplitude modulated signal, power amplification, which boosts the weak line level uh, signal into our average 1 watt output, and signal filtering, where the output is stripped of emissions outside our allowed frequencies, and reflections from return further down the line, all in one unit. It also includes monitoring for our output, and monitoring inserts that we can use to make sure we're sounding just right, without needing to go on air, or take a live station down. Despite it being large, heavy, and one of, the, uh, one of the most expensive pieces of equipment URI owns, it's also really quite simple in operation. An AM modulator can be made on a breadboard with 12 or fewer components and a broadcast RF amplifier, whilst needing various features like continuous power operation and compensation of the circuit capacitance, isn't mass massively different from the kind of op-amp you might get in a hi-fi set. It's the continual operation, monitoring, and rejection of interference that makes this transmitter special. So we, we haven't paid several grand just for an amp uh, that doesn't start buzzing when you leave your phone near it. The signal leaves the transmitter in a very thick 50-ohm coaxial cable on our way to, uh, to our aerial outside the Vanbury kitchens. For central, uh, for central campus location on one half, but more importantly, proximity to the URY Global Engineering Headquarters, or as it's more commonly known, VBAR. A coaxial cable is used over a standard wire or, or, or cable due to its, uh, its rejection of outside signals and low impedance to high frequency signals, keeping the integrity of our broadcast signal for a much longer distance. Indeed, our signal travels near 150 meters from the transmitter to the aerial, through the covered walkways, into Bamber, past the dining hall, into and underneath the kitchens, and out the back to our aerial through a buried concrete duct. A common problem proposed by high-frequency AC signals moving from one conductor into another is standing waves, caused by the reflections of the signal due to changes in impedance to the signal's frequency between mediums. Think how you'd see a reflection of yourself in the window. If, the, if these reflections back to the transmitter are powerful enough, they can cause damage to the transmitter, in addition to interfering with our broadcasted signal. 
In order to match the impedance of the transmission line, that is the coaxial cable, to that of our aerial, we use an antenna tuning unit. This lets us add or remove load from our transmission line until they are equal and reflections are at a tolerable, tolerable level. As the impedance of the aerial can change throughout the year due to temperature changes, vegetation growth, or yet another team of contracted workers deciding to lean metal fences against it despite the signs, the ATU should be tuned a few times a year in order to ensure that we get best results. And finally, the aerial itself is a 10 meter tall tubular monopole, a single-headed transmission wire extending vertically inside a pole for protection against the elements and inebriated students. Monopole antennas are effectively omnidirectional, meaning they broadcast the same power in all directions rather than directing them in any way specifically. 10 meters may sound small, tall for such a small station, but it's actually considerably less than what we need to be most efficient. The most efficient length of transmission wire is usually one quarter of the wavelength of the transmitted signal, which for you or Y on 1350 kilohertz or 222 meters would be about 56 meters. When you have a transmission wire below this one quarter wavelength, the efficiency drops quite rapidly with UOY usually using 30 watts of forward power from the transmitter for our one watt of radiated power. The reasons why this is the case are quite complex, and if you're interested in the reason why or any of the technical fundamentals behind radio, I would urge you to check out the RF design guide by Peter Fitzmuller in order to learn more. Harry, would you like to talk about the way that we use broadcast band frequencies in the UK in order to separate out the radio frequency spectrum for best usage? Uh, yes, so as we've already mentioned, uh, broadcast communications in the UK use the radio frequency spectrum, and these range all the way from 148.5 kHz to 806 MHz, uh, but these are split further into sections of broadcast bands based upon what they're used for. These bands do vary between country to country, but we're going to be talking about what they're used for here in the UK. The lowest frequency block is uh, 148.5 to 283.5 kHz, and this is often known as long wave, though this can also describe any frequency below 300 or 520 kHz, depending on your definition. This is commonly used for AM radio broadcasting, uh, some, well, some of it anyway, but uh, it's also used to transmit time signals to radio controlled clocks, and it's also used in the military to communicate with submerged submarines. The next block is the most commonly used for AM radio, which is medium wave. Uh, the European definition of this is frequencies from 526.5 to 1606.5 kHz. Each channel on medium wave is spaced 9 kHz apart, so you'll notice if you're listening on a digital type radio that can pick up AM, and you're listening to URY on 1350 kHz, if you press channel down you'll end up at 1341, and if you press channel up you'll end up at 1359. Due to the spacing requirements, most UK AM stations use a bandwidth of 6.3 kHz. Uh, the reproduction of the sound depends on the frequency filters in the specific receiver picking it up, which gives AM a major disadvantage when it comes to the quality of music transmission, as it often picks up a lot of interference. The next block up from this is shortwave, which is also used for AM and single sideband modulation. These are higher frequency and as such now move into megahertz instead of kilohertz. Uh, these can be grouped further into smaller bands, but it covers 2.3 to 26.1 megahertz. It's used for a variety of purposes. Some countries allow amateur radio enthusiasts to 
broadcast on shortwave, while others, including the UK, use it as a community broadcast distribution services, uh, often rebroadcasting things such as church services in remote areas, as they can still be picked up after hundreds or even thousands of miles. Above 10 megahertz, there are also numerous frequencies set aside to be used in radio astronomy. Moving up from here, we get to VHF, or Very High Frequency Band 1, and this is 54 to 88 megahertz. This was originally used in the UK for broadcasting TV, but the last transmitter for this was turned off back in January 1985. Next is VHF Band 2, from 87.5 to 108 MHz. This is used for FM radio broadcasting, which provides much more cl clarity than AM due to its higher bandwidth. FM radio became pretty standard across the globe as the main form of radio transmission, but plans have begun to switch off FM radio in countries due to the introduction of new DAB. The first country to do this was Norway, which ceased commercial FM transmission back in 2017. Speaking of DAB, the next block up is VHF Band 3 from 174 to 216 MHz. This is used for the transmission of digital radio services such as DAB or digital audio broadcasting. But uh, unlike tuning an FM radio into a specific frequency, DAB receive a scan preset frequency blocks to identify services operating on the block, but we'll talk more about DAB later. These frequencies also used to carry TV here in the UK, just like a band one. Finally, we have UHF or ultra high frequency from 470 to 806 MHz. This can be further split into band 4 and 5, but they are commonly just grouped together. This is used for digital TV broadcasting and mobile phone communication. There are of course higher frequency ranges, including super, extremely and tremendously high frequencies, yes that is actual name, which cover gigahertz and even go into the terahertz frequencies, but these aren't used here in the UK for communications just yet. You are wise. So FM broadcasting is a method of radio broadcasting using frequency modulation. It was invented in 1933 by American engineer Edwin Armstrong. Arms? Armstrong. I'll go with Armstrong. <laughs> Wideband FM is used worldwide to provide reliable sound over broadcast radio. FM broadcasting is capable of more accurate reproduction of the original program's sound than other broadcasting technologies such as AM or DAB, DAB. Um, therefore, FM is used for more for most broadcasts of music or general audio um, in the audio spectrum. FM radio stations use the very high frequency range of radio frequencies. Throughout the world, the FM broadcast band falls within the VHF part of the radio spectrum, usually 87.5 to 108 MHz, as Harry mentioned earlier. Uh, the Nom the frequency of an FM broadcast station uh, is usually a multiple of 100 kilohertz. However, to minimize inter-channel interference, stations operating at the same or geography close transmitters sites tend to keep at least a 500 kilohertz frequency separation even when closer frequency spacing is technically permitted. Frequency modulation, or FM, is a form of modulation which conveys information by varying the frequency of a carrier wave. With FM frequency deviation from the assigned carrier wave is directly proportional to the amplitude of the input signal, 
determining the frequency of the transmitted signal at a certain point in time. Because transmitted FM signals use more bandwidth than AM signals, this form of modulation is commonly used within the higher frequencies used by TV, the FM broadcast band and land mobile radio systems. The maximum frequency deviation of the carrier is usually, usually specified and regulated by the licensing authorities in each country. The output power of FM broadcasting transmitter is one of the param parameters that governs how far a transmission will cover. The other important parameter are the height of the transmitting antenna and the antenna gain. Transmitting powers should be carefully chosen so that uh, so that the required area is covered without causing interference to other stations further away. Practical transmitter powers range from a few milliwatts to 80 kilowatts. As transmitter power increases above a few kilowatts, the operating cost becomes high and only viable for large stations. VHF radio waves usually do not travel far beyond the visual horizon, so reception distances for FM stations are typically typically limited to 30 to 40 miles or 48 to 64 kilometers. They can also be blocked by hills and to a less ex extent buildings. Indi individuals with more sensitive receivers or specialized antenna systems or who are located in areas with more favorable topography may be able to receive useful FM broadcast signals at somewhat greater distances. Many FM stations are extra uh, Many FM stations use extra audio compression slash processing to keep essential sound above the background noise for listeners, occasionally at the expense of overall pierced sound quality. Yes, and even more modern than FM is DAB, uh, quite often called DAB, or Digital Audio Broadcasting. That's the newest form of radio broadcasting, with its first channel launching in Norway in 1995. Standard DAB radio uses the MPEG-1 Audio Layer 2 audio codec, often referred to as MP2, in order to encode its audio. As previously mentioned, DAB radios do not require the listener to tune into the frequency of the station <coughs> themselves. Instead, through the application of multiplexing and compression, multiple audio streams can be combined onto a relatively narrow band centered on a single broadcast frequency called a DAB ensemble. This means that many more stations can fit onto the DAB spectrum, and it is very quick to change stations on the receiver as you're still actually tuned into pretty much the same thing. There are a couple of upgraded versions of DAB. If you buy a DAB receiver in the UK now, you'll probably find it's actually DAB+. This was introduced in 2007 and uses the AAC Plus audio codec, along with MPEG, surround and stronger er error correction to provide an enhanced service. In the UK, it is intended that all digital radio services will move to DAB Plus in the long term. DMB and DAB IP are alternative versions, but we won't go into them in detail as they aren't used here in the UK. So the benefits of DAB are that it has improved features for the listener, such as radio text or officially dynamic label segment that's sent along with the service containing stuff such as song name, contact details, etc as well as the local time to allow receivers to update their clocks. It has more stations, as we just said. Uh, since the stations are packed together, it allows for much greater numbers of available stations in any particular place. Uh, reception quality, there is no hiss on a weak signal. You either get the full audio or nothing. 
and some people consider the transmission cost to actually be a benefit because although DAB transmitters are more expensive than their analog counterparts, the services are often transmitted by a third party who sells capacity on their transmitter to a number of radio stations, which in turn means the individual station actually pays less. Now, there are a couple of disadvantages to DAB. Uh, the reception quality again, although it's normally much better than an analog radio, you can get a bubbling mud effect when you're on the edge of the signal. This is when the audio cuts in and out and it's rather unpleasant to listen to. DAB also has signal delay, whereas AM and FM radios transmit pretty much as soon as the event happens. DAB signals are often delayed by around 1-4 to four seconds. This isn't usually much of a problem, but if you're watching, say, a live sports event, uh, it, it might have a bit of an impact. Or if you're listening to a New Year's countdown broadcast, you might enter the New Year four seconds later than someone listening to the FM version. Uh, we also mentioned earlier about how some countries are planning an analog radio switch-off, but some are actually doing the opposite. Canada declared their DAB trials a failure and opted to go for HD radio instead, which is a digital hybrid. It's a hybrid digital form of AM and FM, while other countries such as Finland, New Zealand, Portugal, and Taiwan have scrapped their digital radio altogether. So now a brief mention of how UOY does online broadcasting. It's usually quite similar for other commercial and independent providers, although they of course have much larger budgets and wider areas to cover. UOY broadcasts online primarily using two pieces of software called Liquid Soap and Icecast 2. Liquid Soap is responsible for the internal routing and automatic selection of all life live audio sources we use, including our newsfeed, which arrives by satellite, and the groundbreaking Web Studio software on which this program is being sent to our servers from Harry's bedroom over the internet. It also creates our automatic jukebox sustainer that you can hear while the show isn't on using playlists made by our music team, and occasional helpful selections by board URY members. Liquid Soap selects the source that is going to be output on our AM and online feeds using information it is fed from physical buttons in the studios and remotely by our MyRadio content management system. The selected source is then sent over analog pathways to our master compressor, where it receives some much needed sossification before being split into the AM chain, which we've already covered, and the stereo online path that goes back into Liquid Soap. There, Liquid Soap encodes it into three streams, optimized for different types of listening platform and internet connections, and sends it to Icecast. Icecast then serves sequential pieces of the stream to listeners like yourself, chunk by chunk, in order to prevent the stream from dropping out during momentary blips in download speed that are quite common in residential and mobile internet connections. Icecast is very efficient software and is used by most modern audio content distributors where cost efficiency is of a premium. Finally, these streams are served to you by whatever HTTP-compatible listening service that you have available. Your Y streams can be accessed through web browsers on our website, on mobile via the radio player platform, and through smart art speakers like the ALEXA using TuneIn and your voice. But in essence, all of these platforms are still listening to the same Icecast feed, provided by our stream server over, 90, uh, uh, over 1990s technology with their own unique spin and user interface. Jess, would you like to talk about some random quirks that we found through the AM system? Oh, I definitely would. Uh, this is this is interesting thing that I discovered whilst poking around. Um, 
that is that you can hear AM stations from further away at night. And that is because between 40 and 600 miles into the atmosphere, there's a layer called the ionosphere, and that's where radiation from the sun gives off electrons, which then bounce the lower frequency um, radio waves, including AM, back to Earth. FM waves are so high in frequency that they just go straight through, which is why this doesn't affect them. It only affects AM. At night, however, there is no sun. So some of the ionosphere disappears and the bounce back to Earth therefore happens higher up at night, at around 100 miles. So when the wave comes back down to Earth, there is a, a larger... There's It comes back down... If you think about how triangles work, the triangle is taller, the base is also bigger. If it's the same, like the proportions are the same, but you increase um, one length and everything else increases. So it therefore covers a larger area. Um, in America, at least, there are some stations that, in fact, only broadcast during daylight hours so that they don't interfere with other stations at night. Um, although, of course, you are right, can only ever be heard on AM when you are on our campus. For legal reasons. <clears throat> it also travels between campuses because you can't you can actually hear it on campus east, just not in the area in between. It uses no, this, definitely uh, not. magical substance used called Ofcom waves in order to travel through. <laughs> it's an advanced branch of quantum physics currently being looked into by the uh, University of York Physics Department. Thank you to everybody who has listened. We hope that you found this episode informative and entertaining and that you'll join us again next week where we'll be tying up some loose ends and discussing how everything that we've covered so far works together. Of course, a massive thanks to Isaac for joining us this week as well. No worries. And yeah, do do tune, tune in again next week. You are why. You are why.